Welcome to Spot Diagnosis, a podcast about all things dermatological, brought to you by the Skin Health Institute in Melbourne, Australia. I am Dr. Annalise Willems. I'm a GP, medical educator, and research fellow at the Skin Health Institute. And I'm Dr. Blake Mumford, education and research fellow at the Institute. Annalise and I are your co-hosts today. As a reminder for our GP listeners, Spot Diagnosis has been accredited with RACGP and ACRAM. There is one CPD point per episode, so approximately 9 to 10 points per season. All you need to do is subscribe to the podcast, listen to all the episodes and fill in a brief evaluation form on spotdiagnosis.org.au. That was spotdiagnosis.org.au. I am particularly excited about our episode today as we explore autoimmune blistering diseases. Beyond the usual herpes virus and aphthous ulcer presentations, I personally find blistering skin conditions a challenging presentation in general practice, especially when I suspect an autoimmune component. I'm certainly looking forward to learning all about this topic today. Our special guest today is Associate Professor Johannes Kern. Johannes trained as a dermatologist and dermatopathologist at the University of Freiburg, Germany. He is currently a consultant dermatologist and head of research in dermatology at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and clinical associate professor at the University of Melbourne. He is the principal investigator in over 20 ongoing clinical trials, predominantly for inflammatory skin diseases. Johannes, welcome to Spot Diagnosis. Can you start us off by sharing an interesting fact or trivia about autoimmune blistering diseases with our listeners? Thanks for having me. Well, pemphigus foliaceus, a condition we'll touch on today, is the most common autoimmune skin disease in dogs, most commonly in charchaus and Labrador retrievers. Diagnosis and therapy are very similar to the human disease. What sort of symptoms do these poor dogs get? They get erosions of the skin and crusting. You might have to learn more about that later. So, what are autoimmune blistering diseases? Autoimmune blistering diseases are a group of autoantibody-mediated skin diseases with blister formation in the skin and mucous membranes. They're relatively rare, but they can be severe, and they lead to high morbidity and often require significant therapeutic intervention. Could you please talk us through the pathogenesis behind these conditions? The skin is made up of the outer layer, the epidermis, that's attached to the underlying dermis via the dermal-epidermal junction. In autoimmune blistering diseases, autoantibiotics target cell-cell adhesion molecules or components of the dermal-epidermal junction. This directly and indirectly via inflammatory processes leads to cell-cell separation in the epidermis or dermal-epidermal separation. I understand there are several different autoimmune blistering diseases and that this is loosely according to what level of the skin is involved. How do we classify autoimmune blistering diseases? Yes, so there are two main groups, pemphigus diseases with intraepidermal blistering, so higher up, and these give rise to flaccid blisters which break easily and form erosions. And the second group is the pemphigoid group with subepidermal blistering, so lower, and these give rise to tense blisters. Generally, how are these blistering diseases diagnosed? First of all, you've got to take a detailed history. It's very important to exclude other causes of blistering, for example, physically induced blisters from mechanical friction or UV radiation, blistering contact dermatitis, genetic blistering diseases, and of course, bacterial or viral infection. Specific diagnostic tests are conventional skin histology from the edge of a blister 
which delineates the blister level, for example, intraepidermal versus subepidermal. And then there are specialized tests, which look to identify the autoantibodies involved. These are direct immunofluorescence done on perilesional skin. Direct immunofluorescence detects tissue-bound autoantibodies, for example, IgG, IgA, or complement, such as C3. Are there any other special blood tests we should be doing in patients who we suspect have autoimmune blistering conditions? Circulating autoantibodies can be detected in patient serum with indirect immunofluorescence, also called anti-skin antibodies, on various substrates such as monkey esophagus or human salt split skin, and specialized specific tests such as antigen-specific ELISA tests, for example, the Euroimmune Skin Profile ELISA. Coming back to the patient, how do these conditions actually impact on the patient? So the inflammation in the skin and blisters can be extremely itchy. Blisters can become very painful when opening up and can cause major issues with everyday activities such as getting dressed. Blisters can get secondarily infected with risk of sepsis in the worst case. If the mucosa are affected, this can cause major problems depending on the side affected. For example, food intake and swallowing can be severely impacted. Sounds fairly awful. What is the most common blistering disorder we are likely to encounter in our day-to-day practice? That would be bullous pemphigoid. And how common is it? The incidence of bullous pemphigoid is continuously increasing and it's not fully clear why. Currently, the incidence is estimated to be 4.3 in 100,000 per year in the UK. It's a lot more common in older patients. For example, in France, in over 70-year-olds, it's 16.2 per 100,000 per year. Also, the mortality of BP patients is two to six times increased and severe comorbidities, including neurologic disease, are common. So anyone who treats older patients is actually very likely to encounter patients with bullous pemphigoid. And how does bullous pemphigoid normally present? Classically, the patients are elderly and present with severe itch. And on examination, we find widespread erythematous plaques and some tense blisters. This means visible fluid-filled blisters with an intact blister roof. Often, there's a pre-bullous phase that can be difficult to diagnose. Patients can present with urticated itchy plaques, which are not very specific, and the diagnosis can only be made with biopsy, direct immunofluorescence, as mentioned before, and serologic tests. Of note, the itch actually correlates well with disease activity. I think it's time for our first skin tip. Bullous pemphigoid presents with tense blisters and severe itch. That sounds intense. What is the process that leads to the formation of these blisters? Antibodies, so the basal keratinocytes and skin basement membrane, and the resulting inflammatory cascade lead to dermal-epidermal separation. And what do the diagnostic tests show? The skin histology shows subepidermal blistering and typically an eosinophil-rich inflammatory infiltrate. The direct immunofluorescence shows IgG and complement along the skin basement membrane. Circulating autoantibodies can be detected in patient serum with indirect immunofluorescence and ELISA tests. Is bullous pemphigoid something that just happens or can it be triggered? That's a very important point. So recently we frequently see patients on glyptin therapy for their diabetes with onset of bullous pemphigoid after several months or patients on PD-1 inhibitor-targeted immunotherapy, for example, for melanoma, which can trigger bullous pemphigoid. Other common drug triggers are, for example, loop diuretics. Does the bullous pemphigoid resolve once a trigger, such as the glyptin you mentioned, is stopped? That's a difficult question to answer, but in our experience, usually after several months after stopping the culprit medication, the condition can resolve with therapy. 
time for another skin tip. Beware of gliptins in a patient who presents with severe itch and tense blisters. What are the differentials for bullous pemphigoid? Other autoimmune bullous disease, for example, pemphigus, linear IgA dermatosis, bullous lupus, but also generalized fixed bullous drug eruption. And if the disease is localized, for example, bullous cellulitis, edema blisters or diabetic blisters on the legs. Mm-hmm. It sounds like there are a lot of things you need to consider. How is a typical case of bullous pemphigoid managed? So best evidence is for intense topical therapy with superpotent topical corticosteroids, for example, clobidazole propionate, but this is not always practically feasible. Also, supportive therapy is very important. Antiseptics, sterile opening of blisters, wound dressings, antihistamines for the itch. Usually, first-line systemic therapy is with prednisolone, typically 0.25 mg per kilogram up to 0.5 mg per kilogram, also guarded by the comorbidities. Other systemic treatment options include nicotinamide and doxycycline. What about the treatment of more severe cases? These treatments are usually commenced by specialty dermatology units, Dapsone and other steroid-sparing immunosuppressants, for example, mycophenolate or methotrexate, would be the next step. In very severe cases, we use IVIG, plasmapheresis, and there are newer promising therapies in late-stage clinical trials, for example, dupilumab and anti-interleukin-4 and 13 antibody, or benralizumab and anti-interleukin-5 antibody. What is the prognosis for patients who have bullous pemphigoid? So bullous pemphigoid is a disease of the elderly and often associated with, for example, neurologic or other comorbidities. Untreated, it significantly reduces quality of life and there's a risk of infection and deterioration of patients' general status. Appropriate treatment can be challenging due to their age, co-medications and comorbidities. We should really contrast bullous pemphigoid with the other classic autoimmune blistering disease, pemphigus vulgaris. How does this present? Typically, patients are middle-aged and present with skin, oral and other mucosal, for example, nasal, genital or ocular erosions, and sometimes flaccid blisters. The severity can range from very few, almost not noticeable erosions, or just gum fragility, to patients with rapid progression and widespread skin and mucosal erosions that require urgent hospitalization. What are some of the clinical clues that can help you distinguish between a patient with bullous pemphigoid and a patient with pemphigus vulgaris? Bullous pemphigoid are typically elderly patients who present with itch and clinically show tense blisters and urticated plaques, whereas pemphigus patients are younger and have flaccid blisters and widespread erosions. I think it's time for another skin tip. Bullous pemphigoid presents with tense blisters, while pemphigus vulgaris presents with erosions and flaccid blisters, often involving the mucosa. What is happening that leads to the formation of these flaccid blisters? So in pemphigus, the autoantibodies are against cell-cell contact proteins, the desmoglanes, and they lead to the disruption of the cell-cell contacts within the epidermis and an intraepidermal split formation. So just to summarise, it sounds as though the autoantibodies get in the way of the cells sticking together as they normally would, and this space is replaced by fluid forming a blister. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. How do we diagnose pemphigus vulgaris? In pemphigus vulgaris, on histology, the hallmark is intraepidermal blistering, and on direct immunofluorescence, we see intercellular, also called chicken wire staining, with IgG and complement in the epidermis. Pemphigus vulgaris patients always have circulating autoantibodies in their serum, 
And we can detect this in indirect immunofluorescence and with ELISA tests. How does the clinical course of Pemphigus vulgaris differ from patients with bullous pemphigoid? Pemphigus vulgaris affects younger patients, can evolve rapidly and is potentially life-threatening if untreated and warrants aggressive therapy. Can you tell us about a typical case of Pemphigus vulgaris that you have seen? A typical patient with Pemphigus vulgaris that we've seen was a young Uber driver originally from Pakistan who could barely eat because of his very painful erosions. He also had secondary superinfection with HSV. His disease was progressing rapidly and we had to hospitalise him initially with high dose, 1 milligram per kilogram prednisolone equivalent. HSV, of course, being herpes simplex virus. What are the differential diagnoses of Pemphigus vulgaris? Pemphigus foliaceus, which only affects the skin and never the mucosa, mucous membrane pemphigoid and fixed drug eruption with oral involvement. And of course, Stevens-Johnson syndrome and toxic epidermal necrolysis, so severe cutaneous drug reactions. And how do we treat a patient with pemphigus vulgaris? Again, uh, supportive topical therapy, including antiseptics, opening of blisters, dressings are very important. First-line treatment is typically high-dose oral or IV-pulsed corticosteroids. Rituximab is now first-line treatment in Europe and in the US. Unfortunately, it's not yet listed in Australia. IVIG and other steroid-sparing immunosuppressive therapies such as mycophenolate mofetil are also commonly used. You mentioned before sterile opening of blisters. What does that mean exactly? So first we disinfect the skin and then using a sterile needle we open the blister but we do leave the blister roof intact and leave it in place as a cover. It's time for another skin tip. Opening but not de-roofing the blisters can relieve pressure and improve healing. These treatments are pretty intense, Johannes, and they come with a lot of potential side effects. What is the prognosis of Pemphigus vulgaris? Pemphigus vulgaris is a life-threatening disease. Before the advent of systemic corticosteroid therapy, it was almost always fatal due to the inability of food intake, infection and fluid loss. It's not a coincidence that we're using cancer-related terminology such as disease remission or relapse when we talk about autoimmune blistering disease. Today, pemphigus can be managed much better but there are many potential side effects from the required aggressive therapy, including from longer-term high-dose corticosteroid use, infection from immunosuppression, etc. The initial therapy needs to be aggressive with close monitoring of side effects and long-term side effects. We have talked about the two most significant autoimmune blistering diseases. What are some other types we might encounter? Johannes, you mentioned pemphigus fallacious, presenting in our canine friends at the start of this episode. What does it do in humans? Presents similarly in humans, pemphigus foliaceus has the most superficial blister level, like pemphigus vulgaris, but only in the skin. Presentation can look similar to seborrheic dermatitis. So just so our listeners can get a bit of an image in their head, the lowest sort of level of the skin that's affected, that presents as bullous pemphigoid, is that right? That's right. And then next above that, we have pemphigus vulgaris. That's correct. And so the difference between those two is at the lowest level, you get the the epidermal and dermal separation. Therefore, you get tense blisters. Yeah, that's correct. And then so if you go one layer up to pemphigus vulgaris, you just get separation in between the cells and you don't get as many tense blisters. Instead, they're flaccid and you get erosions. Yeah, that's correct. And then at the most superficial layer, you get pemphigus foliaceous in which you just sort of get some crusting and virtually no blisters. Is that right? 
very rarely we do see blisters, but yeah, mostly we do see crusting and erosions. And that's why it can look very similar to seborrheic dermatitis. Right. Okay. I think I've got that clear in my mind. So I've heard there's this cool endemic variant of Pemphigus fallacius in Brazil, something to do with flies in the area. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. So the disease is called Fogo Selvagem, which means wildfire in Portuguese. It's also referred to as endemic Pemphigus foliaceus, and it affects the seborrheic areas, chest, scalp, nasolabial folds. It's endemic in central Brazil, but it's also reported in other Latin American regions. Patients are usually young and have been exposed to rural areas. And recent research indicates that autoantibodies cross-react with an environmental antigen that is found in the saliva of sand flies. Diagnosis and treatment is very similar to pemphigus foliaceus. See, I told you it was pretty cool. So can pemphigus be associated with malignancy? Not typically, but there's a form called paraneoplastic pemphigus, which we suspect in cases with very severe blistering in the oral mucosa and, of course, in the setting of known hematologic malignancy. This is extremely rare and the patients are really very ill. I understand there is a condition called mucous membrane pemphigoid. Could you tell us a bit about this? Mucous membrane pemphigoid is a challenging condition. It's very difficult to make the diagnosis. Often those patients don't have circulating antibodies and it's difficult to obtain tissue for direct immunofluorescence because of the tissues affected. If mucous membrane pemphigoid is scarring, an older term is also cicatricial pemphigoid, it leads to significant morbidity, for example, blindness, esophageal strictures, and pain. And therapy, even if it's aggressive, can often be unsuccessful. Sounds like a fairly awful condition to, to have. I understand there's also a autoimmune bullous disease that occurs only in the setting of pregnancy. Uh, what is this? It's called gestational pemphigoid, and it's a specific form of bullous pemphigoid that only occurs in pregnancy. Likely, antigens from the father do play a role in the pathogenesis. Typically starts around the belly button with very itchy erythematous plaques in the third trimester. This can be challenging to treat, and treatment includes topical therapy, antihistamines, prednisolone, and if required, immunosuppressive therapy, for example, with cyclosporin A or IVIG. That presentation sounds a little bit like PUP, that is, puritic urticarial papules and plaques of pregnancy. How do you differentiate between the two of these? Yes, so it's true. Gestational pemphigoid can be a differential diagnosis when you see a patient with PUP. It's quite typical for gestational pemphigoid to present around the belly button first, which is different to PUP. And that usually is a bit later in pregnancy, third trimester. And obviously, when you see blisters, then it's pretty clear. You think more about gestational pemphigoid. But in some patients, you simply can't be sure and then... The best thing to do is take serum from the patient and you can do an indirect immunofluorescence, anti-skin antibodies, and patients with gestational pemphigoid almost always have circulating autoantibodies and then you can diagnose the disease. That's really interesting. Well, Johannes, we're grateful for all these insights on autoimmune blistering diseases. To blister these conditions into our memory, we've come up with some clinical vignettes. First up, we have Betsy, a 70-year-old woman who presents with four weeks of a painful and itchy blistering rash to her lower limbs. She is a diabetic and has recently been commenced on vildagliptin. On examination, you note diffuse urticaria affecting flexural skin and about 10 erythematous tense bullae on both upper and lower limbs, ranging from 1 to 2 centimetres in diameter. 
Johannes, how would you manage this patient? Now, of course, after today's episode, in a patient recently started on vildagliptin, you strongly suspect bullous pemphigoid. So if possible, you try to obtain a skin biopsy for histology from the edge of a blister and a biopsy for direct immunofluorescence from perilesional skin. And if available, you also request indirect immunofluorescence, anti-skin antibodies from serum. And just to remind our listeners, the histology goes in the pot with formulin. That's correct. And the one for direct immunofluorescence goes in saline. Is that right? That's correct. And lastly, the indirect immunofluorescence is from serum. So in Betsy's case, these tests will confirm the diagnosis of bullous pemphigoid. So in her case, I would definitely stop the gliptin and commence her on potent topical corticosteroids, open blisters, and start her on antihistamines for the itch. It's also safe to start on doxycycline and nicotinamide. Depending on the disease severity and also whether she responds to treatment, it may be worth considering referring her to a specialist or a multidisciplinary unit with experience in treating autoimmune blistering skin disease. And our next patient is Brian. Brian is a previously well 59-year-old mechanic who presents with a three to four week history of increasingly severe ulcers and blisters in his mouth and his lips. These are painful and he's having difficulty swallowing now. In the past week, he's also noticed some blisters on his upper back and scalp that break easily and ooze. On examination, you see multiple superficial erosions to the lips, oral mucosa and back. How would you manage this patient? So in Brian's case, urgent diagnosis is actually required and he should be referred promptly to a centre with experience in managing pemphigus vulgaris. If a GP is comfortable and able to do a skin biopsy, this is very valuable. You'd need to take two 3mm punch biopsies, one from the blister edge, sent in formalin for histology, as discussed earlier, and one from perilesional skin put on saline soaked gauze or into saline directly and sent for direct immunofluorescence. Clinical notes on the pathology form should state the possible diagnosis of pemphigus vulgaris. Brian's inpatient management would include prednisolone between 0.5 up to 1 mg per kilogram and if available and no contraindications, rituximab infusions. Otherwise, steroid-sparing immunosuppressants such as mycophenolac. If his disease is rapidly progressive, IVRG is also a good treatment option. Well, that concludes our episode on autoimmune blistering conditions. We hope it's not been too scarring. Thank you, Johannes, for your time and sharing your expertise with us. Well, thanks very much for having me, and I hope I've been able to shed some light on these rare but actually very important conditions. It's been really interesting, and I, for one, am really looking forward to putting what I've learned today into my clinical practice. We would like to thank our producer and supervisor, Professor Alvin Chong at the Skin Health Institute. We'd also like to thank the education team at the Institute and Balloon Tree Productions. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Spot Diagnosis. Remember, these podcasts are not meant to replace medical advice. If you have a skin condition that requires attention, we strongly encourage you to see your medical practitioner. For listeners who want more information on this subject, a transcript of this episode and links to other resources can be found on our website. That's spotdiagnosis.org.au. spotdiagnosis.org.au. Please share Spot Diagnosis with your friends and colleagues. Rate and review us. Let us know what you think. 
We would really appreciate your feedback and any suggestions. And of course, five-star reviews. Thank you. Thank you.